Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, 9-11, we pause and we reflect upon the many lives that were lost 15 years ago. For some, it's as if it happened yesterday. For others who are about to graduate from high school, they might not even recall it. Lord, you are the God of past, present, and future, holding all things together. The losses of life, the gains of life. The questions of life, the answers of life. You are the God who is supreme. At the same time, as we look into this word, we are praying for those that will be the future leaders of this congregation who are finding ways even now to serve you strategically and humbly, not asking to be recognized, not pursuing positions of visibility, simply committed to serving not positioning themselves to move ahead, but allowing for their sovereign God to pave ways where, if it is your will, to move ahead. We want to use your word as the means to understand the way in which you work in our lives. Pray for families. Minister, particularly those that are fractured right now, Minister to single parents who are feeling the heavy weight of dual responsibilities on one set of shoulders. Pray for students, Father, that are once again engaged in the daily involvements of school. That you give them wisdom and how they not only relate in the classroom, but to one another in the hallways and after school activities. For those at work, for those unemployed, wide range of issues, Father, we're confronted with day in, day out. You know the needs. You're there. The greatest need of all, salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. May any who come today that are spiritually curious but have not yet put faith and trust in Jesus do so today. So, Father, in these minutes together, prayer once again is that you would warm these hearts that you would engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus, him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how would you answer this? There were tears that were swelling and welling within her eyes as she looked at me. We were on the sixth floor of where the radio station was at the point in Pittsburgh. And as I was looking out through the windows where two rivers converged to form the Ohio River, she's asking me, Gary, before you go on the air, I've got a question or two. If God is in control, what's the reason, what's the purpose for praying? And if God's in control, what's the purpose for planning? 
If he already has got it all figured out, what's, what's, the even, what's the purpose of trying? Because she was at a point of despair in her own life. Now, I had my program director uh, waving at me, come on, come on, the countdown before we were going on the air. And he, he knew the seconds, and I didn't have the opportunity to even look at my watch. But I just went like this to him, and he rolled his eyes back. And I said, do you see these two rivers, the Allegheny and the Monongahala? And how they converge into one major river, the Ohio, and moves forward. This is how God works. He sovereignly superintends this world. And he takes the rivers of life, the rivers of time, the rivers of setting, and the rivers of people. And his sovereign purpose is they all converge. And they converge in such a way that they create a forward momentum towards his ultimate goal for this world. And that includes your involvements day in, day out in the decisions, in the prayers, and the plans of your life. For you see, because God is sovereign, not only has he ordained the end, how the world will end, he has also ordained the means toward the end. And some of the means involve prayer. Do you remember how Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, even though it was promised centuries past that he would die on the cross to save us from our sins, he prayed. And if you pondered Proverbs chapter 16, a strategic chapter in the Bible on the whole matter of plans, these are the various streams of God's sovereign ways of weaving this entire stream of planning and praying of people and events and the circumstances of life together to create something for his glory and for our good. Think about it. We'll pick it up once the radio program's done as she stood there in the hallway looking out the windows as I headed in. What I want to do with you is to draw out three significant encouragements this morning that are found in these eight verses about a man named Nehemiah who's positioned in a far-off land, modern-day Iran, burdened for his people and what we know to be Israel, and he is overwhelmed with the fact that the walls of the city are destroyed. Something needs to be done because his people are vulnerable. And this morning, if you feel a sense of vulnerability, I want you to examine these eight verses very carefully and see how they relate to modern day life. Because out of verses 1 through 3 is our first encouragement. We would say to this woman, number one, plan ahead prayerfully. Plan ahead prayerfully discerning God's hand in the observations that others make, believers and unbelievers as well. And I want you to notice how God is about to use the observations of an unbelieving king to draw out the plans that are found within the heart of a believer in his cabinet by the name of Nehemiah 
to set in motion a series of events that will point in the direction of the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem that will pave the way ultimately for Jesus Christ to enter into Jerusalem to die in our place for our sins. It's powerful. If you feel disconnected and removed, you're like a Nehemiah here. But watch how God works. He's still connected to you when you feel disconnected to other things or other people. It was in the month of Nisan. Sounds like a car. What interests us at this point on that Jewish calendar is that that would be roughly in the Easter season, as we noted last week, somewhere March, April. If you draw a line back to what we found in the heart of chapter 1, verse 1, now what happened in the month of Kislev, that's somewhere in that November time period. In other words, four months have gone by. Four months. Four months have gone by, and what you and I are told, that Nehemiah in chapter 1, verse 4, so burdened was he when he gained information about how vulnerable the people of Jerusalem were, his friends, his relatives. We were told he sat down in verse 4 of chapter 1 and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. What we find now is that four months have gone by. He was praying and weeping. Now he's praying and waiting. The great leaders throughout the scriptures were mocked by the capacity and the discipline of maintaining faith while in the waiting periods of life. Is that where you're at? You're waiting for something to happen where God will break in. One of those do-something-God type prayers. You're waiting for the various streams and rivers to converge, and thus far you can't see the point of convergence. What caught our attention last week was that in his prayer in verse 11 of chapter 1, he had prayed, give success to your servant today. And there may be some here that have that sense of urgency and immediacy. Lord, do something and do it now. I need it today. I can't wait for it tomorrow. Four months have gone by. It's Nissan time. It was Kislev time. But now we're in that Easter season on the calendar that we utilize. It's Nissan time on the Jewish calendar. It's the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, which is a reminder at this point that The Jews, Nehemiah in particular, by and large, are under the authority of an unbelieving king in an unbelieving region known today as modern-day Iran. Where are you, Lord? Well, Nehemiah is known at the end of chapter 1 as the cupbearer to the king. That was one of his many responsibilities to test the wine to make absolutely certain that nobody had spiked it before handing it to the king to make sure the king would be in good stead. Long live the king. Wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king 
Notice here the relationship of the believer to the unbeliever. It's the believer, unbeliever who has greater authority positionally than the believer does at this point. So for those of us in corporate America or other places, in other settings where maybe you have an unbeliever who's the boss and you're a believer and you've got to take some orders from him, you've got to look very carefully at the principles that are found here and the way in which a believer can relate to an unbeliever in the matters of responsibility and authority. I took up the wine and gave it to the king. But then he adds this caveat in verse 1. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Now, people who knew that it was banquet time for the king of Persia knew that this was to be a joyous occasion, and if a cupbearer of all people came across as sad, it could prompt something within the mindset of the king that there's a plot against him. And maybe my cupbearer is on the take. It's meant to be a joyous time. You don't want to create false assumptions and false conclusions in the mindset of a king who does not have a constitution like we have in the United States of America or a Bill of Rights, where decisions are sometimes made on the whim. Now he adds, though, at this point, I had not been said in his presence. But in verse 2, This unbelieving king is going to make an observation. Notice your first point, your first encouragement on the screen. The king said to me in the form of a question, why is your face sad? I wonder what the tone of voice was. Seeing you are not sick. Evidently, Nehemiah has got close enough of a relationship to the king that the king knows when he's taken sick days. He knows physically all is well. Why the emotional state? Pause. God can use the observations that others make about your your emotional state to even draw out the plans and the purposes that God has to work through you and for him. At this point, it's the form of a question prompted by the emotional state written all over the face of Nehemiah by an unbelieving king. Why is your face sad, seeing you're not sick? He's trying to connect the dots here. And then makes this statement. He's evidently some kind of a spiritual cardiologist. This is nothing but sadness of the heart. You ever been there? Sometimes we find that our, our faces are bulletin boards that reveal our hearts to others. At the end of verse 2, what you and I are told here at this point, then I was very much afraid. What we desperately need at this point, then, is for Nehemiah to be able to master, discipline his fears, to be able to live for his Lord with a sense of courage. Are you able to do that? Are you doing that? Countering your fears with a sense of courage. 
contrast these two records. The doors were shut when the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews. John 20 verse 19. And they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Acts 4 verse 13. These same disciples were confronted by the same Jews in an interval of only a short period of time. Where did this new courage come from? They had a sovereign God who delivered on the promise that three days later Jesus Christ would be raised from the dead. What you and I have to understand is that the highest degree of courage is seen in the person who is most fearful but refuses to capitulate to it. It might describe what you are dealing with right now physically, relationally. What's Nehemiah going to do at this point? Because you're dealing with the emotional state as well of the king. He responds in verse 3, I said to the king, let the king live forever. Now there's wisdom. The king's worried about Nehemiah being part of a coup. His opening statement is, rest assured, I'm with you. Long live the king. Let the king live forever. But what he does is masterfully, and you see this as well in how Jesus responds to people. He answers a question with a question. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. This had been the working of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar and company. But now the Persians have conquered the Babylonians. No love lost between Babylonians and Persians. And so as the king listens to this, he's thinking, well, that's That's what Nebuchadnezzar's people were all about. He might want to, this king, counter then what had taken place in the past. This is good strategy on the part of Nehemiah at this point, this contrast of experiences. So why should not my face be sad? But the question remains at this point. The king has made such an observation about the emotional state of Nehemiah. Where is God in the midst of the fears within the heart of Nehemiah? Let's get personal. And where is God right now in the midst of the fears that might be lurking within your own heart, but at this point you really haven't shared openly with another person? Ponder this. 1938, Roman Tursky, a Polish flyer, was returning home from France. I'm reading of his story. His plane developed engine trouble, and he had to land for repairs in Nazified Vienna. The next morning, as Tersky stepped out of his hotel to buy souvenirs before resuming his flight, a man came running through the door, slammed into him, and before Tersky could respond verbally, uh, this fellow kept saying, Gestapo, Gestapo. Tersky rushed through the lobby up to his room and arranged this slender man's body underneath the covers at the foot of his bed. 
Tisky made himself look like he'd just gotten up. And after the visiting Gestapo had checked his passport and shouted questions, they left without searching the room. The pilot showed his grateful visitor his flight map. They communicated by gestures. No, Tursky could not take him to Warsaw. He had to land for fuel in Krakow. And drawing prison bars on the margins of the map, he indicated to his new friend that he would be arrested at any airport. He would land in some meadow just over the Polish border and his passenger would be on his own. They did, and he was. And when Tersky landed at Krakow, the police were there to search his plane. They had been told he'd assisted a man to escape from Vienna. They found nothing, so had to release him. And when he was asked why the man had been wanted, the answer was he was a Jew. He was a Jew. Now keep thinking Nehemiah. Tersky served as a fighter pilot in the Polish Air Force. After Poland's defeat, he and others crossed to Romania, where they were caught, sent to concentration camps. Tersky managed to escape and joined the French Air Force. After France's fall, he went to England, fought in the Battle of Britain. On one of his missions, he rammed a German plane and was hit by a scrap of its tail. Partially blinded with blood, he was unconscious when he crash-landed his Spitfire in England. His skull had been fractured, and the chief surgeon at the hospital thought it was useless to operate. But when Tersky awoke and saw a narrow face looking down on him, the man in the white coat asked, Remember me? Now the rest of the story. The fugitive passenger had eventually arrived in Warsaw. Before the war, he had escaped to Poland. On to Scotland. Heard that a Polish squadron had distinguished himself in the Battle of Britain. Thought Tersky might be in it. Wrote to inquire. He was. This man knew Tersky's name because it had been written on the margin of his map. The day before, he had read of a Polish hero shooting down five enemy planes, crash landing in a certain hospital. The piece had indicated the flyer's condition seemed hopeless. He asked the Royal Air Force in Edinburgh to fly him to the hospital that was named. Tersky, a believer, asked him, why do you ask? The man in the white coat answered, I thought that at last I could do something to show you my thankfulness. You see, I am a neurosurgeon. I operated on you this morning. I am the Jew you rescued. And thus began a dialogue about a sovereign God who rescues. Just as God was sovereignly superintending the observations by this unbelieving king in what's now modern-day Iran, 
so as to draw out Nehemiah's thought processes while God was drawing out a plan to set in motion a man moving back to Jerusalem so that walls could be built, so that a Messiah named Jesus would enter into this world to die for our sins. All this fits together. I want you to see now the rivers converging. And if you're looking at a single river right now of your life and you're trying to make sense as to where this leads and to use the illustration of Pittsburgh, what's the point? Trust God for convergence and how all this fits together. Are you doing that? So what I want to say thus far is don't disregard even the observations of unbelievers when it comes to the ways in which even believers are responding to and dealing with the issues of life that are confronting them and the emotional effect that it produces within them. Are you able to do that? And look for the hand of God in the midst of it all. Now, I want you to collect your thoughts together because here's a second encouragement. It comes out of verses 4 and 5. The number two, plan ahead prayerfully, discerning God's hand, not only the observations others make, but secondly, the opportunities conversations present. Look for the hand of God. In verse 4, you and I are told, the king said to me, what are you requesting? What comes next is powerful. Does he answer this earthly king? He pauses. He turns to his heavenly king. Because at the end of verse 4, we are told, so I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, he has spent four months weeping and praying, waiting and praying. But when you have cultivated the spiritual discipline of prayer, then when those moments of opportunity arrive, whether it be work-related, family-related, relationship-related, whatever it is, then out of that resource of time invested in prayer before God, you can offer a singular prayer to God at this point. You've been compounding interest with him, you see. The phone rings. You can either respond immediately, verbally, with, yes, hello, or you can start with allowing it to ring one more time and pray, God, wisdom needed. That's all. And then pick up the phone. For as Martin Luther put it, a good prayer doesn't necessarily have to be long. Don't draw it out. Prayer ought to be frequent and fervent. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, anything creative, anything powerful, anything biblical, insofar as we are participants in it, originates in prayer. Here's a man who has so disciplined his relational aspects of connecting life to God. It's so natural for him to offer what I call arrow prayers, just one-sentence prayers. Something like, 
Wisdom needed, God, and you pick up the phone. Verse 5. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Note the phrasing. A couple of thoughts. Note, first of all, that in that area, there's tremendous respect for our forefathers and their graves. Note, second of all, he does not mention the name Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem was a political hotbed. But what God is doing at this point, if you were to read history of that time period of Persia in relationship to the Middle East, There were tensions between Persia, modern-day Iran, and Egypt. Tensions between Persia, modern-day Iran, and Syria. Boy, this sounds like 2016. And God is using this river of one-on-one communication to possibly set in motion something whereby, politically speaking, this Persian king could create a stable base for his own political influence, handling Syria on one hand and Egypt on the other. Meanwhile, Nehemiah is just broken down about some laws that are broken down. You see. But you see, God sees convergence. God sees the point, and Nehemiah can't quite see it yet, how all this is moving in the direction of Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And it could be right now what you're weighed down with is something that has huge implications. And people are observing the bulletin board of your face, your countenance, trying to read the issues of your heart, But out of these observations come opportunities. And so now, because he's offered this singular prayer back to God, now he's got an horizontal opportunity to start working through strategy. So in verse 5, if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves that I may rebuild it. What we've got to bear in mind at this point is that this is a visionary leader. This is a man who's not only looking at today, he's looking at tomorrow. Paul's to say as we're thinking about the next generation of spiritual leadership in this church and all these services. It's critically important that you not only utilize eyesight of today, but you are dealing with the foresight of the tomorrows. To understand how the decisions of today relate to the destinies of the tomorrows. Look carefully then and ponder the observations others are making about you at this point. Connect them to the opportunities that even conversations are presenting to you at this point. And in each situation, ask yourself, and where is the invisible hand of God orchestrating events, pulling these various rivers together so that they can move in one accord towards the destination that God has for me? Now, as you do that, you're ready then for this third encouragement. 
and it comes out of verses 6, 7, and 8. The thirdly, you plan ahead prayerfully, discerning God's hand in the obstacles that we anticipate. Now, as far as this friend was concerned, as she stood with me at the point of Pittsburgh on that sixth floor of the radio station, as we were looking out, and my director is waving at me, come, 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 and I'm staying, 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 and I'm talking to her, and the clock is ticking, I want her to see convergence. I want her to see rivers, how even the current disappointments of today can lead to the destinies of tomorrow, and that God is sovereign. But you've got to put your faith and trust in him. Now, Nehemiah is a man who connects dots, as should you and as should I. Don't lead a fragmented life. Watch how God's hand is connecting things. Verse 6. And the king said to me, and then in parenthesis, the queen sitting beside him, pause. Everybody has stakeholders in their lives when it comes to the decisions being made. God, through the working of the Holy Spirit, inspired the writer to put in parenthesis and the queen sitting next to him. And I have to wonder, and what influence does she have on the king? Has her heart been tugged? Has there been an exchange of conversation whispered between them? The king said to me, how long will you be gone? And when will you return? Now, this has powerful implications for employer-employee relationships. Evidently, Nehemiah had gained such respect from the king that the king wants him back. There's credibility here. Are you building credibility into your relationships? that God gives you. He wants him back. He wants this Jew back in Iran. Oh, that's irony. How long will you be back when you return? It does not read next, so it pleased me. When the king said yes. It reads, so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. In other words, people need parameters. That's just human nature. Now, Nehemiah is a man of foresight as well as eyesight and insight. And so he's now looking ahead, and spiritual leaders have got to be able to create a sense of anticipation. In the football games this afternoon, strategic settings will occur on various fields across the nation where quarterbacks are going to have to anticipate at the line of scrimmage how the defense is going to react. And across the nation, simultaneously, a middle linebacker in a huddle is going to try to figure out, based upon the history of that particular quarterback and the the ways in which they've gone about in their configurations of lining up their players, what that quarterback is going to call at the line of scrimmage. Will he call an audible or not? Everybody's trying to anticipate. So should you and so should I in the realities of life. In verse 7, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, 
Let letters be given to the governors of the province beyond the river that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. In other words, he's assuming now, he's anticipating there's going to be political pushback against him as he makes his way back to Jerusalem. Spiritual leadership needs to be able to anticipate. People need foresight as well as insight. Charles Coleman, founder of the Oriental Missionary Society, quote, He was a man of vision. Throughout his life he seemed to see what the crowd did not see, to see wider and fuller than many of his own day. He was a man of far horizons. Do you settle for near horizons? Or are you looking towards far horizons? Are you connecting your todays to your tomorrows? God did. When in that Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve fell, he promised of this one to come who would crush the head of the serpent. And here we have foresight generation by generation. If people put their faith and trust in the promised plan of God, it would lead to that point when that promised one would enter into Jerusalem. The walls had been built. And he would die in our place for our sins, you know. But Nehemiah doesn't end there. In verse 8, you and I are told, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest. The king's forest. He's linked the king to this. He's wise. He wants the king to realize he's got some stakeholder issue involved in this decision. The king might be thinking this will create a sense of a political hand upon this region, maintaining then the tension between Egypt, Syria, and Persia, modern-day Iran. But at the same time, what Nehemiah is doing is he's linking the king to the force via this Jew by the name of Asaph, so that he sees, I've got a stake in this as well. This is foresight. Bring foresight into the decisions of life. But what I love here is what we call in business circles the big ask. He's led towards it. A letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. Foresight. A distinguishing feature of a leader who does not settle for today, but is always anticipating tomorrow. He's done his homework. He even knows the name, the first name of this man who keeps the forest and links the king to it. And get this. And the king granted what I asked. But it doesn't end with a period there, does it? Notice how it ends. This is good. For the good hand of my God, there you have it again. For the good hand of my God was upon me, the hand of the Lord. We saw it in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6 and 9 and 28. We saw it in Ezra 8 and 18, 22 and 31. We saw this furthermore in Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 10. And now the hand of the Lord's at work again. Some of you know the story. Back in my collegiate days, I, I incurred a sports injury. I do not have full use of my left hand. I don't have total feeling. 
put a hammer in that hand, it falls out. I can't button my shirt with both hands, need one. I remember when I was out on a missions trip, and everybody was in line. It was kind of like a conveyor belt. We were making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and the bread kept falling out of my hand. I never stopped to tell them why. I was limited. But there is an unlimited capacity with the hand of God. Even though the hand is invisible, the hand is involved. Francis Havergal, who wrote a lot of songs to bring glory to the Lord, the word was constantly close to her heart. Her biographer tells us that on the last day of her life, she asked a friend to read to her from the 42nd chapter of Isaiah. And when the friend read the sixth verse, quote, I, the Lord, have called thee in righteousness and will hold thine hand and will keep thee. Havergal stopped her and she whispered, called, held, kept. I can go home on that. And she did. And when you see God's hand and the observations others make, the opportunities conversations produce, and the obstacles we even anticipate. What you're able to do is to answer the question of this wonderful young lady with tears in her eyes with regard to, if God is sovereign, what's the purpose of praying? And if God is sovereign, what's the purpose of planning? For you see, as you know scripturally, God has not only ordained the end, God has ordained the means to the end, and your Savior, Jesus Christ, prayed in Gethsemane, even though he knew the end. And the book of Proverbs in chapter 16 speaks of the value and the necessity of making plans prayerfully before God. And when you tie all this together, you're standing at the point, and you're seeing the rivers of life converge, and you're trusting in that invisible yet involved hand of God to bring together all things for his glory and your good. Let's stand together. So I'm praying that we will not take lightly what other observations, what other people are making when they observe us. Particularly when we haven't even asked for their observations. But we keep asking, and why? Why did they observe that? And what did they observe? What, are, what can I learn? And then we ponder the opportunities that you give us. Sometimes they come in surprising ways, sometimes unsurprising. But we have prayerfully committed ourselves to the years of life to you. And then we offer these singular prayers of help to you but help us to realize that even the obstacles of life need to be prepared for in advance, knowing that you, the sovereign God, are in control and that you took all the obstacles that Jesus Christ faced with the Sanhedrin, with Pontius Pilate, with Herod, and brought him to the cross where three days later after having died, he rose from the dead, all part of your sovereign purpose. And we see your hand at work.
So, Father, give us indicators of how the hand of God is operative here. Keep us at the point. Help us to trust in the convergence. And may we being, continue to bring glory to you, even when we don't always see how tomorrow relates to today. We commit all this to you now, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.